Good morning, and welcome to the online radio voice of the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. We're here at the foot of majestic Pikes Peak, and we are ready to listen to Tom's World Language Cafe. Tom, welcome to your cafe. I'm thoroughly enjoying your cafe this morning because it is an international cafe. Tell us why, Tom. Good morning, Marge. Um, welcome to all the listeners. Uh, and it's uh, Wednesday, May 24th here in Indianapolis. We'd like to welcome you to the World Language Cafe, Tom's World Language Cafe, where we talk about all things dealing with uh, world languages, uh, from language to culture, art. Uh, literature, all kinds of neat topics uh, that we explore here. And uh, I'm talking to you from Avon, Indiana, where it's about 80 degrees and we are under a tornado watch oh. until 7 p.m. tonight. And it seems like we've been under tornado watches for the last two weeks. And uh, hopefully we will escape without any major uh, damage after uh, all the terrible thing that happened in Missouri right. a couple of days ago. Um, the uh, We'd like to welcome you and also thank the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, for sponsoring the program and for Marge for being here to help us with the show every week as well. Um, today we have as our guest uh, a person um, uh, of uh, renown in his field, and uh, his name is Dr. Frank Eckes. And Frank, I call him Frank, uh, has an interesting background. Frank has a a bachelor's degree from the University of California in Davis. He has an MA for, in Spanish literature from Indiana University. He has an MA and a PhD from the University of Michigan in art history. Uh, and is an honorary research associate in, associate in art history at La Trobe University, where he previously lectured for 27 years. Frank is a specialist in Spanish art, especially art from the 16th century to 2000 and Dutch and Flemish painting Good. as well, the 16th and uh, century to the 18th century. He's been visiting, he's been a visiting assistant professor at the University of California, Davis. And in the second half of 2005, he was a guest lecturer in Baroque Art in the Art History and Theory Department at the University of Sydney in Australia. He has held numerous scholarships and grants, such as the Fulbright Hayes Grant, a grant for research in Spain for foreign Hispanists. His PhD thesis was entitled Supernatural Themes in the Art of Francisco de Goya, uh, and it was published by the University of Michigan Press. His other publications include the book Reason and Folly, The Prince of Francisco Goya, articles on Jacob Jordan's Mercury and Argus, and Jan Steen's Interior in the Wedding Party in European Masterpieces, Sixth Century of Paintings of National Gallery of Victoria, Australia, uh, and numerous other articles such as Goya's Tauromachia, criticism of bullfighting, and Goya and sus seis asuntos de brujas, Goya and his six subjects dealing with witches in Goya Revisa de Arte uh, in 2003. Tom, we only have an hour. Okay, that's it. <laughs> and I just wanted to give you a brief, this is a brief curriculum vitae of our guest, 
who is really going to give you some brilliant um, insights into our history uh, and why it's about life, etc. Frank, good morning. Uh, Frank is talking to us uh, from Australia near Sydney, uh, where, where he's talking to us uh, from his office, actually. Uh, good morning, Frank, and, 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 and well, good evening in Australia. Good, very good morning because we're here at, at one in the morning in Australia, and I'm I, I'm actually near Melbourne, Australia. I'm sorry, Melbourne. Excuse me, Melbourne. Yes, yeah, yes. Well, he and, got it uh, almost right, Frank. He got everything almost right. But how how are you holding up at this hour of the morning? We thank you oh, very well, much for a, doing this. I had a bit a bit of a siesta today, oh, good. and so I'd be able to stay up late. That's marvelous. I usually stay up, stay up till twelve, but I I'm uh, I'm able to do it today. So it's that's good. wonderful. The siesta helped. Now, Frank, it's also uh, you're entering the winter season, right? Yes, we're we're just at at the last part of autumn, and winter starts in Australia and in uh, June. So everything's reversed in Australia, you know, because this is the land down under. So, well, we certainly are, uh, thank you for staying up late to be on the show. That, that's really nice, and I'm sure the listeners are going to be happy that they got all your insights here into art, history, and, and various and sundry things that are related to art. Uh, Frank, tell us a little bit about your, your, your life, uh, a little bit where you started at in, uh, in the United States, in uh, your journey to Australia, and, and, and tell the listeners it's quite an interesting story. Yes, well, I, I was born in Sacramento, California, and um, I went to school at the University of California, Davis, which you mentioned, uh, where I studied Spanish and art. I've always been interested in both uh, Spanish language, literature, and, and art. I used to um, paint and draw, and uh, so the two things finally came together after many years, but uh, uh, then I went to um, Indiana, uh, Indiana University, where I did my master's in Spanish literature, and one of my teachers from Davis, a very famous scholar named Concha Zardoya, was also teaching in Indiana, is another reason that I went there, and after getting the master's there, I uh, taught Spanish for a year at the University of Nevada, Reno, Nevada, and that was quite an experience <laughs> in Reno, Nevada. Um, but I found that I was missing very much the art side of things, so I decided to go on in, in art history, especially Spanish art history, which was my main interest. So I went to the University of, of Michigan to study with one of the world experts. Um, there weren't so many of them in the United States, so it was difficult. Um, I chose Harold Wethy, um, and he was the one of the world expert on El Greco and other artists like Titian, but he'd worked in South America and in Spain extensively. So then I got another master's in art history in Michigan, and I um, uh, did a PhD in Michigan, and uh, of course the PhD required an extensive thesis, so um, that took a, a long time to produce, <laughs> but I was fortunate to get a, um, a Fulbright scholarship to Spain, and so I was able to start working on the, the dissertation part of the thesis, which was on Goya, which you mentioned, and um, in Spain I met my wife, um, who was Spanish, and um, we decided that it would be a great adventure to come to Australia because my teacher, Harold Wethy, um, got this job for me in, uh, 
Melbourne, Australia. And so we got married in California and came to Australia. And we're here for a long time. We've been here for 35 years. Oh, my so, goodness. Uh, oh, my goodness. Very long time. And there's not a touch of, of an Australian accent that I can that I can hear. No, well, it's I'm American. all California, all California. There you go. Yeah, and I, I haven't been to the States, though, since 2000 now, but I go to um, Europe a lot. Um, go to Spain and um, uh, to, to London because my oldest son was living in London for some time. Um, the I, I would like to put a little footnote in here that I did meet Frank along the way uh, at Indiana University when I was studying Spanish literature as well. And we actually were roommates at uh, Indiana University for, for quite a while there. And uh, Frank introduced me, I recall, to some of the, the, the gypsy folklore, the gypsy, gypsy beliefs, because he had lived in Granada where he had, and, and, uh, during his studies of Spanish and spent some time with the gypsies. And I always remember many of the things Frank taught me <laughs> there about the, the gypsies of, of Granada. So uh, that was another thing Frank was quite uh, knowledgeable of. And he had spent time in Granada and really liked Garcia Lorca, and, uh, whom I really always loved, too, as a, as a poet and dramatist. Um, Frank, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, all the people you studied in art and, and, and who were your top four painters, your top four favorite all-time painters. I'm hoping I hear one. I'm hoping I hear one. Yes. But you go ahead. Ah, uh, yes, it's, it's very hard because it, I have a yes. lot of favorites. But, of course, um, uh, I've studied sort of all the major schools of especially European art, um, but also I'm a, a person who studied Asian art. I, I'm very interested in Japanese art. But sort of all arts, to be honest. I've learned a lot about Australian art since I've lived here for a long time. Know a lot about American art, of course. Um, I also studied African art and um, uh, all kinds of art. And here in Australia, we have a very important Aboriginal art, as you know, too. Um, but my major interests are really um, with Spanish art and uh, Dutch and Flemish art. Um, so but is El Bosco in one of those categories? Oh, he's one of my favorites, yes. Oh, I'm is. so glad you said but that. My, Who is that? My top, Bosco, Bosco Bosch, Hieronymus Bosch. Hieronymus okay, Bosch. Okay. Yeah, and, and Bruegel, Peter Bruegel the Elder yes. is another of my favorites. But my top, top, you know, if you want just four, I'll have to put the very top, my I, who I think is the greatest painter probably okay. of all time, uh, Velazquez. Okay. And uh, it's really hard to give ranking these people because there's so many great artists. Um, and probably next I'd have to put uh, Rembrandt. Um, Rembrandt is one of my big, big favorites. Um, and I have to put Goya because I worked on Goya. I still work on Goya and he's really important to me. Uh, then it would be for fourth um, very hard. Um, probably Bruegel. I really love Peter Bruegel. Um, but Bosch would be near there, and so would Rubens. I, I've done a lot of work on Rubens. And then we have all the Spanish artists who I really love. Um, Murillo, Rivera, El Greco. He's not Spanish, of course, but he worked in Spain. Um, uh, and there are lots more. And if you get to more modern things, I'm very, very interested. done a lot of work on Picasso, and recently did a lot of work with Salvador Dali, 
Um, and it goes on and on, you know. But, you know, the fun guy, the fun guy that I just thoroughly enjoy when I talk to my students about color and form is Juan Miro. And um, I love Juan Miro. He makes me feel so good, and he yeah. makes me smile. So he makes my students yes. smile, too. There's a lot of sort of whimsy in his yes. painting. You know, it's a big exhibition of Miro at the moment in London. Well, let's just go. Let's just go once the once the uh, uh, terremoto goes away in Iceland. About the uh, French painters of America. Now, what, who are some of the great? Oh, the, yes, I love the French. As, of course, the 19th century belongs mainly to France, as you know, with all the great French painters, Manet, and my my probably most favorite French painter of that period is Monet. I, I love. I studied with one of the experts on Monet, Joel Isaacson, in Michigan. And I've always loved Monet. And but then, of course, you have so many French painters. You know, Toulouse-Lautrec and Cezanne, and Van Van Gogh is Dutch, of course, but he worked in France. Um, Gauguin. Um, it goes on and on, as you know, with the French. I like a lot of earlier French artists too. I think the greatest French artist of all time is Nicolas Poussin, who um, he's a 17th-century painter, as you know, who worked mainly in Rome because that was one of the centers for. 17th century. I mean, Velazquez went to Rome, but Poussin, of course, um, preferred living in Rome to, to Paris. Uh, even he was called back to France, but he's a really, really great painter, um, and uh, he did, uh, you know, wonderful landscapes. Another really important French painter is Antoine Watteau, a great 18th century artist who died very tragically, very young, you know, too. Um, so, you know, the list is sort of endless of all these people. There are great sculptors, of course, too. You can't forget the Renaissance people like Michelangelo. And um, then in the 17th century, you got Bernini, really great sculptor. Um, and then we get to the more modern things like Rodin, another very important uh, French sculptor. I, so there's so many. I have another question. This is a, a little bit different question, but if you were telling the listeners, if you were advising them, if they're in Europe, what are the top three museums there, or top five museums you would recommend that they or visit? Or seven. <laughs> yes, there's so many. Oh, that's that's difficult. Um, of course, I'm very, as you can imagine, liking Spanish art so much. My favorite museum is the Museo del Prado in Madrid, of course. But I mean, you can't um, just put down the Louvre in Paris and. Um, I'd have to say, too, Rome is really, there's so many museums in Rome. I mean, they're partly the Sistine Chapel, of course, and all the things in the Vatican, or the Raphael paintings in the Vatican. But, you know, there's um, the Doria Pamphili collection in Rome. There's the, and then Florence is incredibly important because you've got the Uffizi and the Pitti. Those are two of the most important museums. Um, and then we've got the Kunst, another of my favorite museums is the Kunsthistorische Museum in Vienna. And that has a fabulous, just that has the best collection <coughs> of Bruegels, you know, in the world. And they're all, all the Bruegels are in one room in the Kunsthistorische. You, you have to go there to see Bruegels. Now, what about the United States? What are the top four or five you would recommend in the United States? Oh, that's hard too, because there's so many great museums in the United States. Um, well, probably number one has to be the Metropolitan Museum yeah. in New York, um, but very close by. Um, the Art Institute in Chicago is one of my favorites, too. It's very important, as you know. And 
then it's very hard because there's so many others. Um, there's, there are wonderful things for Asian art in the United States, too. The Freer Gallery is, is wonderful. The National Gallery in Washington, D.C., it's fabulous. Um, there's also the uh, Palace of the Legion of Art in San Francisco, where I studied a lot, um, in California. And the Getty is mm -hmm. fabulous, you know, the Getty Collection in Los Angeles. That's a more recent uh, museum. Um, that really is worth visiting. Uh, and there's some more, of course, in the Midwest. There's Cleveland, and, and it goes on and on. But probably the number one, I would have to say, is the Metropolitan. I, I remember back at uh, Indiana University where you talked me into taking a course on pre-Columbian art. And we went into this, it was a fascinating class, and uh, I can't remember the professor's name. Was it Sieber or something? Yes, Roy, Roy Sieber, I think it was. Great professor. He was just magnificent. But, I remember we saw all of this pre-Columbian art, and I was going, how am I ever going to pass this test? I mean, it seemed <laughs> we had to memorize like 5,000 slides or whatever we did. No yes, it was in all slides. It was tough, but it was a great class. Uh, but I, I remember I used, to draw, I used to draw the pictures uh, and would take notes, and I would draw the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I'd take notes, and you drew the pictures. That's how we survived. I remember one um, uh, other uh, treat I had was uh, Frank was in Indianapolis, Indiana, several times he'd visit my, my family uh, and while we were studying. And we would take a visit occasionally to the art museum, the uh, Indianapolis Museum of Art. And Frank, being with Frank in a museum is a treat because uh, he tells you the history about every painting. It's amazing. And I was it kind of boggled my mind. And, how one person could know all these facts about all these painters, et cetera, in the history of art. Uh, at any rate, uh, it was always a treat to be with Frank in the museum, the uh, museum when he would uh, literally give the history of uh, the art, or the, the, the art there. Uh, the other thing Frank does in the summers, I was going to ask him to mention a little bit about his museum uh, trip that he offers. Uh, in Spain, I believe it is. Uh, Frank, can you tell us about that, your program you do in the summer? Yes, yes. No, I'm, I'm taking another group, uh, a cultural group to Spain in uh, this September, a group of Australians. And um, I've been doing these for a few years, and they're tours through um, Madrid and all the surrounding areas of Madrid. And then we go uh, through the Cervantes country of La Mancha, and we stay in a beautiful corridor in Almagro. Because, as you know, that's where the one of the few remaining Coral de Comedias, one of the theaters of the 17th century, is still there. And then we go down to the south to um, Cordoba, um, Sevilla, and Granada. And of course, we go to all the major museums, the, the Prado in Madrid, and we go to the, the art collection in the Escorial, and uh, to the, the Thyssen Museum in Madrid, and the um, Arena Sofia, where the modern art is, you know, that's where Genica is, of course, and uh, all kinds of other places, Segovia, Toledo, we, there's a part on El Greco, of course, who his major works that you know are in Toledo, and then we go to places, the uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Seville, of course, and, and all the famous monuments of uh, uh, Alhambra, you know, all the Moorish uh, monuments in Spain. Mesquita and Cordoba and all those fabulous places. So it's a really thorough trip, isn't it, on, on visiting, learning about yes. Spain and the museums and the painters and life. Yes, it, 
Sounds like a fascinating program. What now, is the duration of the trip, Frank? How long this are is you a, away? a two-week trip, and it's fairly rapidly. It moves fairly rapidly, um, and um, I, I chose the whole itinerary, and we stay at the very nice uh, four-star hotels on the way. Too. Do you have it's to be Australian to go on this trip? No, you don't have to. Um, uh, we, we've got about 14 people so far. Um, the a person who runs this company is called Travels Through Time. As a lady who uh, is a former teacher of French at Melbourne University, her name is Sylvia Sigorna, and she takes groups also to France, cultural groups to, to Paris and so on, and the France of the Impressionists and things of this sort. And can, pe um, and can people receive university credit for taking this course? Not for this one, no. I did give one of those uh, some years ago, a course on Goya that I gave in Spain. Mm -hmm. But no, you don't get university credit for these. Frank, is there an email that the, that the listeners could send an email if they ever are interested in going on the trip? Oh, yes. They have a wonderful website, um, Travels Through Time. If you just go, just put that in, uh, you'll get um, Travels Through Time, and it's uh, Sylvia Sigourney's website. And it, it details all the trips that are offered, especially this one on Spain. And, and she also runs uh, cultural programs. I give lots of lectures. For I her think Tom might just put that on his website. And I'm thinking we can put it on the UCCS website. So yeah, you'll get absolutely. major, major propaganda. Uh, I have a question. May I ask it? Yes, please. Good. Tom, is it OK with you if I ask the question? What question is that? The question is, what can we learn about culture through painting? Oh, well, that's an important question. And you can certainly learn. I think it's one of the best ways to study history, uh, actually art history, because um, it's, for one thing, it's more pleasant. You know, it isn't as cut and dry as just studying history because you have the visual images. So you learn about the, the culture of the, the country through their, their visual images, the portraits of people, of the period, um, also the, uh, the sort of mentality of people in the, the different centuries and uh, what the historical events, the patronage of, of the people who commissioned these works. The, of course, in Spain, the church is so important in the earlier works. Um, they were the major patrons, as you know, for the Spanish religious painting. And so you learn a lot about the, the culture and society of the different periods and, and the historical details. Uh, we, we know about um, a lot of the kings and, and so on through the, the artists who did their portraits, of course. Uh, you know, that's how we, uh, we know so much about Philip IV because of Velazquez uh, painting his court. Uh, and this is true of so much uh, art of different periods. So, Frank, why, why did, did, did you like and continue to like teaching art history? Uh, what, what got you, why do you like doing that? I'm just curious. What is your, you know, you have obviously have a passion for that. Now, why is that? Well, I, you know, I started out doing art because um, uh, I studied painting and drawing and all these things and sculpture, and I always liked art very, very much. And, um, and then I also liked, as you know, Spanish. So um, the things all came together, really. Um, but it's just, I've, I've always felt art was um, one of the most important creative things of, of humankind, you know, um, and it, it's a very pleasant thing to study. I've always, <coughs> excuse me, I've always asked my students if they could live without music 
or live without dance, or live without art, and they said it's absolutely impossible. Life would not be worth living without those three. And uh, I, well, would, I, I would agree that, with that. I would agree with their statement. Oh, yes. I mean, if we didn't have music and art, you know, and and um, all these cultural things, it'd be, it'd be pretty boring, wouldn't it? Frank, I remember also that you were able to tie in, I, I remember your work on Goya, uh, and, and Velasquez, how you were tying that in with literature uh, and writing. Now, what is the connection in, in between uh, somebody who writes and a painter and, and different things? Because uh, is there a way that can be tied in and teaching you things? So you could talk about a literary figure and also art and the epic and what was going on? Because I, I know you do that quite well. Yes, no, that's very interesting. And, um, you know, the there are lots of relationships between a lot of the great uh, Spanish works of literature and, and painting. Goya, for example, was very interested in Spanish literature, and he did paintings of La Rio de Tormes, you know, the great picaresque novel, and he did um, La Celestina. Um, Murillo, too, did an early depiction of, of these women on a balcony, which are, is related to Celestina, actually. And this continues through a lot of Spanish artists. Picasso, you know, is absolutely obsessed with Spanish literature. Um, he did Celestina over and over, um, especially in his late etchings. He did a whole series based on Celestina. And um, so you have all these things. That they're very close relations, you know, between the picaresque novels and Velázquez's early paintings, the, what we call the bodegones, these uh, pictures with people and still life uh, details that he did in Seville. And so all of these relationships between a lot of the, the work uh, it's very interesting that actually speaking of Hieronymus Bosch too, um, he he did a painting of uh, you know carnival and then uh, Peter Bruegel took this theme up, uh, you know carnival and Lent and it's very closely related to the the great Spanish classic um, uh, by the Arcipreste de Ita, you know Libro de Buen Amor where they have the, the Book of Good Love where they have this battle between carnival and Lent. So there are all these parallels between literary works, what people write, and then you know, what artists depict. Uh, because, of course, they're all reflections of the, the cultures yeah. that they, they come from. Uh, suppose, for example, this is changing the topic a little bit, not, not totally, but, but when we, we talk to students about the importance of writing and that they learn how to write, and maybe they develop an art of writing where the, the writer creates uh, their own world too through words, and the the, the painter does it through through visual of the picture, etc. Uh, and is is there a way that in education today we need to be focusing more on this art idea in it, it that it becomes more permanent in how we teach that we could be teaching more creatively, let's say, at uh, elementary school, high school, college that we need to bring in the play more, the arts, uh, that, that we, we have people writing, we have people painting, drawing, and doing things uh, other than just filling blanks uh, in, in classes, in the classroom, uh, or maybe uh, uh, not focusing enough maybe on, on developing uh, the students' creativity. Um, do you have a thought about that? Yes, no, I agree, and I think I think you know that uh, visual images are, are really important for people to learn about um, language too. Um, if they have a picture, 
this is, you know, they say a picture tells a thousand uh, words. And if, if you have a, a something visual, that can be a great a stimulation, and especially if it's a very wonderful work of art. Uh, the same with music, of course. You know, you can, um, music can uh, inspire you uh, with uh, literature, with the written word. But, you know, a visual image is one way of remembering um, something that you're also writing. Um, uh, and it's a very good tool for, for very young children, you know. Yeah. Not only can they, they can do it themselves, of course, they can also. Um, when I was a student in Spanish uh, in high school, I used to draw pictures uh, illustrating novels that we were studying. Uh, and this is a really uh, good way to combine things. Yeah, and, and, and that was kind of, I was going back to your interest in art history and, and your first art classes, and but you also drew, you, you drew pictures and, and, and did a little painting and things. And I wonder in, in the classes, in the classroom today, that if we had contests, let's say, we had a contest, we have an art contest, let's say, uh, in an elementary school and uh, uh, drawing and painting, or we have uh, in the high school, have an art contest throughout the school uh, for expression and drawing and, and painting, the creative, the creation by students, or writing contests, right? Uh, in English or in foreign languages by students in creation of poetry in Spanish or whatever where the students get to write uh, or music where the students write some music and write some songs and uh, lyrics but wouldn't that be pretty exciting in a school yeah it, some things we don't really have today it seems like we we have a lot of uh, frills but we don't ever um, give the students maybe enough creativity development you know a chance to do that I think that's very important. I think that would really be wonderful, you know. I think, too, that arts are very good. You know, for, for young students, um, things like mythology and the Bible are starting to be lost very much. And um, through art, through these pictures, you know, this is a good way to stimulate people to learn about the myths and, and about the Bible stories. And, and so you can, you can really uh, solve a lot of problems through the visual images. Now, the, the technology today, is obviously changing the way people study and learn and, and it's influencing the artists. Um, can you comment on that? And for a further question is after the comment, uh, what place does it have in, in schools, the technology from your point of view? And what about the human side of things? Uh, are we going to lose that? I'm just curious to see how you would respond to that. Yes, well, as you know, in a lot of universities now, um, they're giving um, online courses where you don't actually um, have much personal contact with the um, lecturer or the, or the, the teacher. Um, you see them, of course, sometimes through video connections and so on, but you don't actually uh, have the classroom kind of structure uh, anymore. Um, I think, um, I mean, it's making a lot of progress and it seems to be one of the future developments, but I'm afraid I'm still in favor of you know the personal contact with students um, and I mean students submit their work you know through emails and through um, technology in this way and then the, the lecturer would comments on their work and sends it back in, in emails but it becomes somewhat depersonalized you know this whole system in my opinion and I think that's a, a bit of a problem with uh, the online teaching but I certainly think it's going to develop more and more in the future but in a way, I think, don't you, that uh, there's room for both 
there's room for both of these uh, entities. We're losing part of our humanity for sure if we exclusively incorporate only um, technology in our areas, whether we tweet rather than send a thank you card by writing it, or whether we just use graphic clips from our computer program rather than looking at something really fresh and new or whatever it happens to be. We do have programs here at our university which deal with computer gaming which uses another piece of the brain but the very important pieces of the brain that have to be placed together are the ones that use the creative and the the logical pieces, the left and the right brain together, which, which can come together, I think, through using art itself. I would always love to, with my students, read a letter that was written by Beckett or a poem that he wrote about the love of his life. Such, instead of saying, uh, how do you say I love you in English? Well, I love you, let's have a hamburger, you know. But when you read Becker, it's absolutely glorious, the way he describes his love. Or the simple things about tomatoes in the street with Neruda. The street was filled with tomatoes. You don't think about tomatoes that way. You think about them as uh, little coupons that you're getting for half price or something of that kind through technology. So using the two things together would be great, which brings my question up, Tom and Frank. What is the present state of art as you see it globally, since you are a global person? Frank, well, what do you think? A, that's an important uh, question, of course. And art is changing radically, as you know, yeah. because now we have computer art, and we have right. video art, and we have graffiti. Avatars. Yeah, all of that. All of these things that are, are coming into the art world. Um, I mean, painting is still very important, of course, um, and I think always will be. Uh, but we have all these other forms of art, um, mainly because of the new technological developments, especially, uh, as I was saying, kind of video art. And um, all these things go back to performance art, too, which was very big, remember, in the 60s and 70s. But um, art is going in new directions. Um, uh, and um, I think it's, it's very interesting. Um, I think uh, with contemporary art, um, I'm, I'm a little concerned sometimes about the quality of contemporary art. I, I don't find uh, the, you know, so many really great artists um, in the, the contemporary period that uh, we had uh, in this, well, in the 20th century, of course, we had some very great artists like Picasso and Matisse, for example. But it's hard to see quite as many uh, in developing now. Um, but of course, it's hard to know globally who the great artists will be considered in the future, because right. uh, this is never known. If you think of the Impressionists um, or the Post-Impressionists, you know, the French used to laugh at these people and thought they were terrible. <laughs> and now we consider them the leading uh, people of modern art. Um, so it's very, very difficult with uh, deciding about contemporary things. But I think a lot of contemporary art won't be remembered. Um, and the ones that will be remembered may not be the ones we think will be remembered. Um, so only time will tell. Only time will tell. I mean, uh, probably Andy Warhol, yes, he'll be remembered. But it's very difficult with um, more contemporary things, I think. Frank, could you tell the listeners about um, we were talking about technology, and this is certainly a super 
um, positive presentation by the museums of their, their presence on the websites and what they're doing. I know the Prado, you mentioned the, the wonderful uh, internet, uh, the, the website they have. Can you tell the listeners about the Prado site and any of the others uh, as to what's going on with their websites now and what you can really learn there? Oh, yes, it's wonderful. You know, Google has a new um, art project website where you can visit all the museums, all a lot of the major museums in the world now. And they've just started this. And you can, they've chosen certain paintings which you can view on your computer in great detail. You can go into the most minute brushstroke of the picture now. Um, and so everyone should have a look out for that Google art project that you but the Prado has done some really innovative things recently. Um, for the first time, they've put uh, the complete catalog of their present exhibition, which is called No Solo Goya, Not Only Goya. It's an exhibition of, of drawings and of, of etchings and photographs. And they put it all digitally on the computer, which you can download the whole catalog, all 390 pages of this catalog. Um, and it's incredible, this digital catalog, because it's interactive. So in other words, you're reading the text about a drawing, for example, by Alonzo Cano or Goya, and uh, in the, there are certain things highlighted in the text, in the bibliography, and when you click on there, you can go to uh, that article <laughs> in the bibliography to read it, and then you can also go to the comparison works of. Uh, uh, they talk about you know other drawings that are related to this. You can actually go by clicking on the, the uh, to the, to the comparison drawing or the painting. Uh, really quite incredible. This is the first time that I've ever seen this uh, uh, first catalog. This sounds like uh, material for a class, Frank, that you can do with your students. Just say the word. This is a class on clicking art or something like that, and just basically show people the structural technology of how to get into the humanities of the art by using the technology of the present. That would be a great one. May I give a plug to one of our programs? We have a marvelous yes. program, which is uh, the art of the Cuban diaspora, which is taking place now from May until October. Our professor of women's and ethnic studies, Andrea Herrera, has put this together with a lot of folks from all over the world who have created their poems because of their, their experience with their Cuban uh, migration to other parts of the world. And that exhibit is going to be as presently now, I should say, at the Sangre de Cristo Arts Center in not Colorado Springs, Colorado, but Pueblo, Colorado. And when you go in and see the, the actual art itself, you can hear the poems that have been read by the poets when you're watching the or looking at the art. And it is absolutely ah, glorious. So you might want to check that out, the Sangre de Cristo Arts Center in Pueblo, Colorado. It's good. It's Wonderful. been uh, subsidized by the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Okay. Uh, Frank, back to um, Velázquez. Uh, if, if we talk about Velázquez, uh, Velázquez and you were having to, if you have to, pick out his greatest work, which one would you pick? We know. Pick we, are, we all know the answer to this. You know who it is. Meninas, right? You know Las Meninas. But there is another one that's almost equally important, which is the one we call in Spanish Las Hilanderas, the, right. the, so, 
spinners, but it's really the fable of Arachne. Um, uh, it's a mythological um, work, as you know. But it's another... Uh, it's could, you, great could you tell the listeners about what the topic is and what happens in Las Meninas, in case they don't know, and ones who don't know maybe uh, much about Spanish culture, uh, other languages or language teachers. Tell, can you tell them what happens in Las Meninas? What, who are the subjects in the picture of the painting? Sure. Um, it's, of course, a depiction of the court of uh, Philip IV, and um, it's a very late picture by Velázquez um, in 1656 uh, that he he did, and the, the, the most important figure in the painting is the little Infanta Margarita, you know, the little princess, and she's in the center, of course, with her two maids of honor. The words, of course, Meninas are actually not Spanish, but uh, Portuguese, and they refer, of course, to the, her attendants, to her maids of honor. And then you have all the people uh, sort of associated with her and the court. Um, you have um, what we call a guardadamas, um, of man and woman who take care of the uh, maids of honor. They're sort of in the shadows. Uh, there's also two dwarfs. Uh, one looks like a little boy, but he's actually a dwarf. Um, and as you know, Philip IV had the biggest sort of menagerie of dwarfs in all of Europe. But it was quite a custom in, at this period to collect dwarfs. I did my master's thesis, you know, on depiction of dwarfs in art. <laughs> Um, so Las Meninas is, is uh, one of my favorites. Um, and, of course, Velázquez himself is in the picture. He's at his uh, easel. Uh, we don't see what he's painting, but it's a very large painting. You just see the back of it. Um, he's looking out. And in, in the mirror um, on the wall at the back, you see the king, uh, Philip IV, and his second wife, Mariana of Austria, they're reflected in the mirror as if they're standing. They would have to be standing out where we as spectators are, uh, looking at the scene of the, the maids of honor. Uh, there's a dog, too, with the dwarves, as you know. Um, so we have this, this recreation of, it's an actual room. It was the room of the prince, uh, Baltazar Carlos, a little prince, uh, who had died. And Velazquez used that as his studio. So it's the, the actual room that the, the prince had occupied that Velazquez turned into a studio. Because you have paintings hanging on the walls, and there are two mythological paintings at, at the very back, uh, which um, probably has something to do with the symbolic meaning of the picture. Uh, as you know, there have been so many um, studies of this picture and so many theories about what it all means. Um, it's certainly uh, his homage, Velazquez's homage, to the court of Philip IV. Um, because of court protocol, of course, the king and the queen couldn't be included in, in the flesh, if you like, with the dogs in, an, in, in a more informal kind of setting like this. So that's why they're partly reflected in the mirror. And um, it's also a kind of testimony to Velazquez. Um, his great goal in life was to be um, a noble, as you know. And he, he does finally achieve it. Um, after he finished his painting, uh, received the uh, cross of the Order of Santiago, St. James, you know, the patron saint of Spain. This is one of the most important noble uh, orders in Spain. And uh, according to the myth, we don't know this is true, the king actually painted it on his chest in the painting. Uh, it certainly was painted on his chest after the picture was finished, so maybe the king did it. Um, and this was kind of a realization of his lifelong dream, because, you know, it's very hard in this period for an artist to become a noble. 
um, and he's one of the few people that achieved it. Um, so it's also his role as an artist we see in the court and how he relates to, to the um, court society uh, of the period. But um, it's, it's such a, uh, an illusionistic picture because you feel you're in there, you, that you're part of the picture. You know, the way Velasquez has used mirrors and the way he's used reality and illusion to bring you into the picture is one of the greatest innovations in painting, of course. And um, it, it certainly is one of the great masterpieces in the whole world you know, of, of art. Now, what about Goya? Who, what would be your favorite painting of Goya? Well, there are lots of, it's always hard, you know, because there's so many. Um, his, I guess if you only have to pick one, you have to pick the 3rd of May, 1808, you know, uh, because that's one of the great statements about war. And Goya was a radical innovator um, about his depiction of war. Um, uh, no one had sort of shown the uh, sort of the victims of war till Goya did this picture. It used to, war used to be glorified, as you know, in the 17th century when you think of Velázquez's painting of Las Lanzas, uh, the surrender of Breda, um, that's a kind of glorification of the Spanish um, and their defeat of the Dutch at Breda. Uh, and if you think of Rubens or any of the earlier painters, they always glorify war. But Goya shows that it isn't quite like that. Um, it's really about victims, you know, and there are really no heroes in, in Goya's painting, um, but the, the victims of this of the Spanish uprising against the French. And it's, it was a battle um, that took place in the Porta del Sol um, against the uh, Napoleon's uh, Mameluke troops, you know, his Egyptian uh, Mamelukes, and the French soldiers. And the Spaniards who were caught in this rebellion on the 2nd of May were then uh, executed um, on the 3rd in the evening at, at the hill of Principe Pio uh, in Madrid. And that's what Goya is depicting. But of course, he, he doesn't show it exactly as, as it really was, because he's making a point about um, about war. And so you have this kind of um, black upper part of the picture that sort of presses down on the figures. Um, and you know, the executioners, it, you don't really see their faces too much. They're almost like robots, as they're uh, what we do focus on are the Spanish victims um, and the different reactions. Uh, fear, you know, one man's fighting his fists, um, and their reactions to, to death. You have three moments, too. You have um, the people who are, are, are about to be killed by the executioners, uh, a pool of the dead lying in their blood in the foreground, and then the next group who are, are going to be uh, killed. Um, if Goya, of course, lived today, he probably wouldn't make cinema because, you you know, this, this kind of um, uh, movement that he creates this idea of, of three moments in the in time, a very radical um, innovation in painting, um, and the way it's painted is is wonderful, of course, too, um, and it had an enormous influence. You know, this this picture on later artists like Picasso and Manet, as you know, was very interested in, in Goya's picture too, um, but it was one of the big statements, and it will always be. Um, one of the great denunciations of war and uh, about how war really uh, doesn't create heroes but creates victims. The um, uh, next question is a little bit different. Um, uh, Spain, um, uh, as many of the listeners know, the unemployment rate in Spain is quite high. And um, I was going to ask you, Frank, if you had any insight into the election the other day. That I guess they were local elections. 
in Spain and what had happened there and uh, with the uh, reigning political party. Uh, did you, do you have any insight, recent insight into that? Yes, the, 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 the um, Socialist Party didn't do so well in the elections, you know, these local elections. It was the PP um, Party um, are coming back again. And um, this has a lot to do with the problems that you were mentioning of unemployment and um, banking problems, you know, for the economy um, in Spain. So I think that's why the, the, the PP won most of, of the municipal elections. Although they do have to share in some some seats with, um, there'll have to be kind of coalitions going on with some. Um, but as you were mentioning, the unemployment in Spain is, you know, about 21%. Right. Um, very, very strong. And there's been big protests, you probably know, in the Fridays, lately. yeah. And uh, um, this, is, this is still going on, I think, at present. Um, and uh, people are very unhappy. There's, a, especially uh, for younger people, very bad unemployment. They just can't, there, there are very few jobs for younger people. Um, so they're, they're bringing about a change in the government, obviously. I don't know, too, if, if when they have the national elections, how Lafatero will, will do. Um, probably not, not so well because um, of these um, financial problems. Spain's a little better off, of course, though, than countries like Greece and Portugal at the moment. Um, but the people, of course, are not too happy with the situation because uh, there are just no jobs. Um, why, Frank, have you spent a great part of your life in, in Australia? Uh, you obviously must like it. Maybe, can you tell the listeners why it would be a good idea for them to visit Australia? Well, Australia is, you know, one of the, the most interesting countries for the future, I think. Um, um, uh, it's really a beautiful country. And um, the only problem is it's very far away. <laughs> Um, but um, beautiful, uh, the weather's very nice, um, beautiful beaches, uh, incredible animals, if you know. But, you know, um, I think in the United States, I used to have sort of the wrong ideas about Australia because you think there are kangaroos in the streets and so on, and it's not like that at all. In fact, we don't see kangaroos very often. Um, once in a while we see it, one or two, but very few. And we have to really go to the zoo to see them, <laughs> and the koalas and all the... Uh, but we have wonderful birds, incredible. We have in our, uh, where we live, we live in the country, we have cockatoos and uh, um, rosellas and all these kind of parrots, uh, beautiful, beautiful. Um, and uh, these animals, echidnas, you know, in our garden sometime. Um, uh, it's a very, very interesting place uh, with a big future. Um, the government is, is uh, good and uh, there isn't very, there isn't much unemployment. It's only about 4% unemployment in Australia. Um, the economy is one of the better economies in the world at the present time. Uh, in fact, the Australian dollar is worth more, more than the U.S. dollar at the present. It's got up to a dollar ten recently. Goodness. It's, I think, about a dollar four at the moment. In well, my question to you, Frank, is aside from Tom, what is the most missed item in your American life? What do you miss most, aside from Tom Alsop, from America? Oh, well. well who knows? Um, he may not miss Tom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I haven't seen Tom in, in such a long time. Um, but um, I, I do miss some things about the United States and certain foods and things. Which foods? Tell us, please. 
<laughs> one one that I really miss is prime ribs of beef. Mm. We don't have that in the, that same kind of thing, that kind of cut uh, in Australia. They don't have that. And um, American pies. <laughs> My wife always dislikes when I go to um, the United States because I eat all these pies and get fat again. <laughs> um, but um, I really love American pies and American ice cream and all these things. And in Australia, like they have a, they have a certain kind of item that they put on their toast that's salty, I believe. It's not, yeah. they, they don't put sweet jam on their toast. They put salty something on their toast. Yeah, it's called Vegemite. Right. And yeah, I don't particularly like it. It is <laughs> salty, but it's a big Australian thing, uh, lots of people. And you know, speaking of jam and things, you have to be careful because the use of words is very different in Australia. Um, I didn't realize it when I first came. And um, you, you don't, in the United States, we call jam also jelly, as you know. But right. here in Australia, jelly is, is like um, uh, a kind of um, pastry thing. It's not at all like jam. You have to say jam if you want jam. <laughs> and another thing that threw me was were napkins. You know, um, you don't call them napkins. Because they're and, towels. And you call them serviettes in Australia. That's very uh, interesting. Napkins, napkins are, are towels. Oh, I well, see. I see. Yeah. Wonderful. So there are these we well, have we to learn these Australian and Australian has uh, they have a lot of slang in Australia it's very different too for example they like to cut words um, so instead of calling barbecues they call them barbies right. and um, uh, garbage men they call garbos <laughs> so they just cut <laughs> off the end of all the words <laughs> they don't have time for the whole word right no, they're, they're more leisurely here in Australia. Very interesting. Well, we have two new courses for you to think about teaching. One of them is mythology in Spanish painting or in world painting, which would be a, a huge course of about 30 centuries. And the other one is war as depicted in Spanish art. That would be interesting, too. We have humanities courses here in the States at our university where teachers can pick their own favorite things to do for a semester, and many times they choose things that are really very, very unique. As a matter of fact, one professor who was born in 1968 chose the revolutionary times of 1968, and one of his students who was living those times in 68 had to correct him on several occasions because he didn't get it quite right you know it being there living it is entirely different from studying it but I think you could do both so I think that's a marvelous idea hopefully you'll keep us posted as to what courses you're teaching are you teaching uh, this coming up semester I'm, I'm, I, I'm basically retired, you know, but I still give um, series of lectures. I'm, I'm working actually talking about mythology. I'm going to give a, three lectures on a mythological painting in the 17th century in August. I connected that. I connected with you on that. Yeah, so. I like mythology a lot, obviously. And I, last year I gave a whole series on uh, Salvador Dali because we had a, a big exhibition in Australia of Dali. And I've been doing Picasso in um, Australia in uh, July of, uh, well, no, it's it's um, actually November. We're going to have a big um, uh, Picasso exhibition here in Sydney, Australia. Uh, 200 Picasso paintings from uh, Paris, actually, from the Musée Picasso in Paris. So um, I give a lot of lectures for the museums in Australia, too. Uh, uh, two, two quick questions, Frank. One, uh, 
where would you tell the listeners to go, what the best museum to see the work of Salvador Dali and the best place to go to see the works of uh, Picasso? Yes, well, as you know, there's an incredible, uh, the most important Dali museum in the world is uh, in, uh, where he was born, in Cadaques and Villeras, the so-called theater museum of Dali. That's where he's buried in uh, Catalonia. But the other one that's really important is in Florida, as you know, St. Petersburg, Florida, of all places. An incredibly important Dali, because that's when we had the big exhibition here, they brought paintings from both of those collections, from the uh, Catalan uh, Dali Museum and then from the uh, St. Petersburg collection. They've just opened a new new museum in St. Petersburg. They redid the museum. It's supposed to be fabulous, actually. And for Picasso, um, the Musée Picasso in Paris is really important. They, they have one of the biggest collections, but they're closed for a few years. They're redoing the museum in Paris. Um, also, Barcelona, as you know, has an important Picasso museum, especially his earlier work, and his, uh, they have the whole, all the variations on Las Meninas that Picasso did there in Barcelona. It's in a lovely part of the city, too, in the old part of Barcelona. There's a new Picasso museum in Malaga, because he was born in Malaga, as you know, and I haven't seen that one yet, but um, uh, there are lots of uh, Picassos, of course, in the United States. Um, you know, uh, to see Guernica, you have to go to the Se Reina Sophia Museum. <laughs> Yeah, we have two minutes United left, <laughs> and I thought that in the last two minutes you might want to give a message to teachers who are ready to embark on their careers as language humanists and uh, all kinds of things. What would you give? What What would you say to people who are embarking on that, whether they be in the elementary, the secondary, or in the university areas? What would you tell them? What's What's one thing that they should always keep in mind? Well, they should always keep in mind that, it, that they have a really important duty uh, about conveying the importance of these works, especially of the past, um, uh, to children and to students uh, so that they can understand the importance of these cultural creations and their relevance for today because, of course, the present doesn't exist without the past and works of art are really the, the key things for the creative history of of I agree with that. And Tom, of course, did you have a message for everybody at this point? That I, that I want to give at the end of the show, yes. Yes. Uh, uh, just thanking Frank for being with us today as our guest from Australia. We really enjoyed it via Skype. Uh, quite a revolution here we're doing with online radio via Skype from Avon, Indiana, out to the beautiful Colorado Springs at the foot of Pikes Peak. And Australia. Thank you, technology. New technology. And then uh, next next week, I believe, or our next show uh, is going to come to you live from Palencia, España, uh, where we're going to have a, a professor uh, that you're going to truly enjoy, Juan Pablo, who's going to talk to you from España. And uh, then we're going to have a live broadcast um, in, in Mexico from Guadalajara. Uh, and we're going to have going to be live from Guadalajara, and I'm going to do a live one later uh, from España. So uh, it's going to be fun. So thank you all for being with us, Marge. Thank you. Thank and you. And Frank, it was a great pleasure to have you on the show. Yes. And uh, you, um, you're, you, tú eres una persona única e increíble, eh? And uh, I te felicito, eh, por tus grandes éxitos, eh? 
uh, that your successes and your knowledge of art is, right. uh, history is overwhelming and beautiful, and, and uh, it's a work of a lifetime, and you certainly have mastered it. And we are happy you've been on the show. In addition oh, to that, I would, I would like to say, sorry for interrupting, Craig, that it's thanks to another national treasure that all of this is happening. And that national treasure is Tom Alsop, because he lives excellence, and he brings it to every instant of his life, every, every moment of his life. And I am and will be forever grateful to him as a friend and a colleague. So I hope you have a wonderful week. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. See you next time. Bye. of the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs at the foot of Majestic Pikes Peak. to the online radio voice of the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. We're located at the foot of Majestic Pikes Peak, so we invite you to keep it tuned to radio.uccs.edu and get in touch with us on Twitter. That's UCCS Online Radio, where we keep you entertained, involved, and academically excellent. <laughs>